Hi, everyone, and welcome to episode 43 of the Holding Court podcast. Today, we'll wrap up our discussion on mental health, and Justin will offer some insight on mental health in baseball. We'll chat about a star player's decision to refuse to do media for the French Open and find out what teammate almost won a brand new car at the Justin Turner Golf Classic. All coming up right now on Holding Court. Boom. Welcome back. It's good to be back. I would like to hope or think to myself that you missed me on the last episode, but when I listened to it, it just sounded like you were having a grand old time without me. I was thriving. Yeah, it was it was really good. Thank Proud you. of you. Thank you. We both maybe wanted to shit ourselves over nerves and everything, but that's, I mean, thankfully no one did. Uh, but <laughs> it, it, it was nerve wracking. Uh, it's a difficult topic and it's something that you want to do correctly. You don't want to say the wrong thing or give the wrong information. And so I think, I mean, I'm always nervous for episodes, especially when we have guests on. I just, I don't know. I always get myself a little more worked up the normal, but I feel like for last week, there was just a lot of pressure and also deviating a little from sports, which I feel like is kind of just our comfort level for the podcast. And also probably why a majority of people listen, um, is to hear a podcast about sports. So it was nice to kind of have the sports tie in with the mental health, but it was good. it was really good feedback from people. And I think that was the best part because you just never know when you do something a little different, if people are going to like it or they're going to say, oh, you know, the line like stick to sports or stick to yeah, <laughs> why we're yeah. listening to you is to talk about players and the team and, and all of that. So it was really, really nice to do something slightly different and still get really positive feedback about it. Well, I think the thing about mental health is it's such a broad field and it can apply in so many different ways. And everyone probably assumes that it's this, big huge thing but it 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 can be little things as well and what you just talked about is part of some of your mental health the anxiety leading up to the podcast and the nerves that you get and the fears that you have of messing up or not sounding right or you know you don't listen to any of your podcasts because you don't like the way you sound so like all that little or what's perceived as little anxiety, like that's a big deal to you leading up to doing this. So I just think it's important to understand that, you know, mental health comes in all different shapes and sizes and it applies to everything that everyone does. And, you know, like you guys said many times on the last episode, like you just don't know what other people are going through and, you know, empathy and kindness and, and grace are, are such a big thing to help people, you know, get through tough times. Yeah. It's a lot dealing with anxiety and then talking about anxiety. (laughs) So it's definitely kind of like a full circle moment for it, but it was really cool. And I'm an open book. Like, I feel like that's me. Like I'll talk about anything. I really don't, there's not a lot that's off limits with me. And I think that that hopefully is helpful for people to hear, you know, someone on a podcast say, okay, I do go to therapy every week. I do deal with anxiety. And then there were so many people messaging saying, oh my gosh, I deal with the same thing or my son deals with the same thing. So thank you for 
opening up and being vulnerable and sharing that. And there were a lot of people that messaged and said they were encouraged to find a therapist and talk to someone. And that was really cool too. Cause I think like I mentioned on the episode last week, it just sometimes takes that one friend to say, Oh, I'm doing this. Or like my reference was, there's a lot of like pants shitting references on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, you guys are <laughs> getting into that. <laughs> but like you hear a friend say like, oh, I'm doing this. And then you're like, oh, wait, me too. And so yeah. I think that is helpful to kind of destigmatize the conversation of mental health and open up that conversation to everybody, no matter who you are. It's, you know, there's, like you mentioned, you don't know what someone's dealing with or what they're going through. So it is helpful and there's definitely strength in numbers and friends that I guarantee everyone has multiple, multiple friends that are dealing with some form of mental health struggles or go to therapy or couples therapy or anything like that. So they're definitely out there. It just is a matter of speaking about it. Well, yeah. And and speaking to the other side of that, you know, I'm not saying that I don't have anxiety or, or different, you know, problems of my own, but I'm a super open, outgoing person who enjoys being around people and talking to people and having conversations. And, you know, that didn't come as easy for you. And, you know, in the beginning of our relationship, I'd always just be like, what? It's like, let's go. It's nothing. You're great at this. Like you're so good at talking to people, even though you had that anxiety about talking and I just didn't understand it. I couldn't like wrap my head around it. So like, it's, it's a real thing and it's hard. I get it. It's hard for some people who don't, deal with a lot of anxiety to understand the anxiety because I had a hard time with it, but uh, it doesn't mean you shouldn't have empathy and shouldn't be kind and reach out to people and try to be more understanding about what they're going through. And, you know, that's something that I've kind of had to work on to try to understand it more, you know, with the anxieties that you deal with. Yeah, we would be going to an event and I just wouldn't be able to leave the house. And you're like, what are you talking about? Like, you're fine when you're there. Like, you're great and everyone loves you and you're so funny and you're engaged in conversation. And it was just more about like the thought of being social or being at an event or again, like the saying the wrong thing. Like, I'm someone that if I like make a bad joke or like say something inappropriate, like I'll wake up in the middle of the night, like 10 years from now and be like, why did I make that joke at that? sponsorship event like so stupid (laughs) like I think about things for like years and years and years and you just only saw me at an event like being okay and so I think you couldn't make that connection of like wait does she just not want to go to the event like does she just want to stay home like it just didn't make sense and it's kind of that not really being able to understand it unless you experience it and I think a lot of it goes with you know someone dealing with depression you might just think okay choose happiness or like choose to be happy and I think for you who naturally and thankfully enjoys life and like genuinely has a good time. If you've never dealt with depression, that's beyond your control. It's hard to maybe have empathy for someone and say, okay, well just be happy, like do things that make you happy. And so I think maybe just, yeah, taking that step back and thinking about things that are maybe underneath the surface with people would allow everyone overall to express a little more um, compassion, empathy towards others. Yeah. And you guys talked about it last week as well as how people just presume like because of the situation you're in that you have it easy and it's not just outsiders presuming that like I fell into that category like man like what 
what can be difficult right now? We like everything's so good. Like, I don't understand. Like, why aren't you happy? Why aren't you excited to go here? Why aren't you excited to do this stuff? And I had a hard time really understanding it. And I was the same as the outsiders who were just saying, oh, yeah, like your life's so tough. Like I was basically doing it to yeah. ourselves. So, um, you know, it's it's definitely a difficult conversation. It's a difficult topic and it's very real. And it's something that, you know, I think everyone to a certain extent has to, you know, have a real conversation with themselves and, and understand, you know, what, for one, they're going through. And then also, you know, try to be more compassionate about the people around them and understand what they're going through as well. Definitely. And I know you wanted to speak a little about the tie-in with sports that we mentioned and the mental health aspect. And I tried to do my best. There were, there were definitely moments last week where I'm like, oh, Justin could add so much to this conversation. Cause I'm kind of like spitballing and kind of not guessing, but giving just very general information about access to mental health and those conversations of you and your teammates. Cause I know you guys are all very close, but I was just assuming that it's maybe not as easy for a teammate to admit a mental health struggle unless it's associated with some form of performance. Like, Oh, I'm just frustrated because I'm not hitting or something like that. I feel like that might be easier for someone to say versus, Oh, I'm dealing with this, you know, anxiety or this depression or this event in my life. Yeah. I think, well, first of all, I think you did a great job um, of kind of making the comparisons and, and pulling up examples. But I think, a couple things here. I one, I feel like I'm I was extremely fortunate because I went to Cal State Fullerton and there was a professor at Cal State Fullerton who I've talked about on the podcast before named Dr. Ken Revisa, who is one of the most revered sports psychologists in the world. Um he's worked with baseball teams, basketball teams, Olympic teams, um, all across the board in every sport you can probably think of. And I had the opportunity to take multiple classes of his and then also work with him for four years, um, you know, with the baseball team. He would come out two, three times a week and do different stuff with them. So the the understanding of the mental side of baseball and the perspectives that I got from Dr. Revisa, I think was probably one of the most important things in my entire career uh, over the hitting and the fielding and being around Fullerton as a kid and, you know, meeting Doug Lotta, who obviously helped me change my swing. But uh, the stuff that I learned, you know, upstairs and dealing with failure um, through Dr. Ken Revisa, I think was ultimately what gave me the opportunity to keep playing and, and get to the major leagues and, be that bench player for four or five years before I actually figured out the physical side of baseball and, and got the opportunity to play every day. So I think that was enormous. And then, you know, the second part about baseball and, and mental awareness and mental health that I've kind of grown to know as a veteran guy. And I think most veteran guys kind of sense this. I don't know if they realize it in a way, but Usually when something happens and there's a, uh, a skewed performance, right? Like something out of character, um, you know, you just kind of 
now I just kind of sit back and, and think like, okay, like something is way different. Um, this could be just a one-off thing or whatever, but most of the time there's something else going on or something Mm -hmm. happened that just doesn't have, you know, myself or, or a teammate in the right, like mental space to where, you know, it, it really, really skews a, a performance. And I feel like more often than not, that's the case. And you just try to be there for them, support them, tell them, Hey man, don't worry about it. You know, one of my, one of my favorite lines, and I learned this from AJ Ellis. Um, and I actually told this to Kershaw a couple of weeks ago when he, I don't remember where we were. He, he, I don't, I think he only pitched one inning and he didn't get out of the first inning and they, and they pulled him. And, uh, where was it? Chicago, maybe. Maybe it was Chicago. I don't remember. Anyways, um, you know, obviously Kershaw's a Hall of Famer, and, and he's <laughs> one of the greatest competitors I've ever been around. And A.J. Ellis is one of his best friends. So I actually used one of A.J.'s lines to Kirsch. And, um, you know, I was like, hey, you know, one of the good things about this, because he told me, he's like, hey, that's never happened to me before, ever in my life. And I said, hey, if you play this game long enough, if you're fortunate enough, if you're good enough to play the game long enough, something like that is going to happen. Like, you're going to only go one inning and not make it out of the first inning because you've been so good and you've played so long. Mm-hmm. Like, you've created that opportunity <laughs> for this bad moment to happen. Yeah. <clears throat> and the funny thing was, a few weeks later, he had the opportunity to say it to me. Because I struck out four times in a game for <laughs> the first time. If this was going to go there <laughs> for the first time in my <laughs> career, and it was kind of like a chuckle between the two of us, and it was like, oh, if you play this game long enough, you know, that's going to happen. So, um, not everything necessarily is is tied to something going on off the field or something else going on. Sometimes there's just stuff happens, but usually, when something goes sideways, my first thoughts are, you know check on the guy, see how they're doing, make sure everything's okay and give them an opportunity if they want to, uh, to just have a conversation. Yeah. I love that. I think it's probably not that common, but it is good. And that's why, you know, like veteran presence is so important and you being comfortable to say that. And especially with the young guys, I think not even so much as like a deeper mental health issue, but just that pressure, like how many young guys do you have this season that are probably thinking, oh my gosh, I'm going to get sent down if I have a bad game or I have this. And you like, you start to unravel and think like, oh, I have to perform and I have to do all this. And so what do you say to like, I'm sure that has to come up with some of the younger guys and, and that pressure with them. Well, yeah, the hardest part about being a younger player is you you chase results because results are what are going to keep you at the major league level. If you don't get results, the chances are you're probably going to get sent back down and they're going to have someone else, you know, come up and try to get better results. And that is literally the worst thing a baseball player can do is chase results. Um, You have to, I don't want to say you have to, the best way to approach the game of baseball is by being process oriented and making sure you're doing everything in your power the right way in your routines and your work to give yourself the best chance for success. If your only goal every day is to get three hits, you're going to go home a sad person a lot 
in this game. <laughs> yeah. Like, that doesn't happen. Like, no one gets three hits every day. So, but what you can control is your work before the game, uh, your batting practice, what you do, your drills, uh, your routines um, as you're getting ready to hit, as you're walking to the on-deck circle, as you're going up to the box, your approach against the pitcher, your plan that you put together on how you want to attack the pitcher. Like, you can control all that stuff. What you can't control is, you know, when you hit the ball, where where the defense is playing, right? Because I think one of the biggest things about baseball is you can do everything right four times in a row, and you can be 0 for 4. Yeah. Right? And then you can actually swing at terrible pitches and get jammed and break your bats and shake hit your little, hands out and <clears throat> shake your hands like CT3, like barrels are <laughs> overrated and you get a result, you get a hit. And in your mind, you know, like, okay, that's not sustainable mm-hmm. to be a, a good player. <laughs> yeah. But obviously you want to take the result because, you know, we all like getting hits and having success, but some guys would rather, you know, have three jam shot blooper broken bat hits and go three for four, then hit four balls at 110 miles an hour and, and be over four. Like me personally, I, I'm able to step back and see the big picture. And I know that hitting the ball hard more frequently is going to be more sustainable over 162 game season. So I'll take that over four hitting four balls hard. You did say that you'd want to have, if you hit what, like four balls in the air hard, then yep. that's a good day. So hundred percent Sunday was, or Saturday was a good day. Yeah, I just missed a couple of balls, hit a couple of balls towards the end, but like I felt like I was in a really, really good place. Yeah, and you know I would take that over. You know, in the in the beginning of the year, I was getting a lot of hits, but I was getting jammed a lot and hitting a lot of bloopers over the first baseman's head, yeah. <clears throat> and you know hitting a lot of like weak ground balls the other way that were finding holes, which is fine, and those are going to happen, and sometimes you have to take those hits, but like I knew that my swing wasn't in a great place. I was just getting results. And sure enough, you know, when the game swings and the, I feel yeah, like it it's like a, up. it's like a pendulum, <clears> right? <throat> it swings like for the positive and then you always, it swings back down the other way and then you go through a little lull and, and the trick is trying to keep the lulls as short as possible. Yeah. And you know, I, I went, I've been going through a little funk, whatever. And, and now I finally feel like I'm getting back to a place where like I'm sustainable again and hitting balls hard. I'm not getting great results right now, but I'm taking way better at bats than I, than I was over the previous couple of weeks. So it's a constant like mental grind. Like, what do you really want? Do you want to get hits and have the results and see the numbers on the board? Or do you want to like feel good and know that you're doing things the right way? For me personally, I want to feel good and know that I'm doing things the right way. And I know that the hits will come from that. I think sometimes though, those little like bloop shots will, I could be wrong, like lighten a guy up or like make him laugh. Like you get one and you're like, how did that even, like I've done everything so right and I haven't gotten any results the way I'm supposed to. And then I break my bat and it bloops over the second baseman's head and you can't help but laugh. And then I feel like that has to lighten everyone up. And then the dugout's laughing and cheering for you because they know, I mean, you guys all know what everyone's going through. hundred percent. Struggles or highs or anything like that. So that has to be like, okay, shit. Like I just have to laugh and like maybe Look, that loosens you up a little bit. I'm in no way, shape or form knocking on a knock. Like a knock, <laughs> a big league hit is a big league hit. It doesn't matter how you right. shape it up. I'm just 
talking if you're searching about, for like a specific yes, feeling, that's not the feeling you're, like, you want. Yeah. I'm going to take that broken bat blooper <laughs> and put it in my back pocket and be happy about it. And a lot of times, you know, it takes something like that to right. kind of get you out of a little funk because you just, it's just like a weight off your shoulder. Like, oh, okay, I got a hit. Now I can relax and go and like take my next at bats instead of being over one, over two, over three, over four. And you're like, oh my God, you're going up for your fifth at bat. And you're like, oh my God, I'm about to go over five. Like that's some thoughts that go right. through people's heads and you can't, that's not, that's a terrible recipe for success. Like you have to be able to trick yourself and trick your mind into no matter how good or how bad you feel, like you want to walk into the box, like you're three for three every single time you step in the box, even if it's your first at bat, like you should be stepping in the box, like with that feeling that you're three for three, because it's a really good feeling when you're three for three going up for your fourth at bat, the confidence level is through the roof and you have a really good chance of getting another hit. But when you're 0 for 4 and you're walking to the box and you know you're 0 for 4, like, and you're kind of against yourself already, like, it's, that makes it really hard. You're not, that's a bad recipe. Yeah. So. And then I think, well, we can transition a little bit into this because it's kind of a hot topic right now. But when you are struggling or you're going through anything, I feel like, you really don't need any help amplifying that in your head. Like you're aware and it's always kind of funny when, when someone will talk about it and even recently, like your struggles, which obviously not a big deal, it's May, but people will ask about it and they'll, it's almost like they don't know that, you know, they're like, Oh, by the way, do you know that you're two for your last 22? And you're <laughs> like, yeah, I actually, I heard that. And so with, this is actually happening right now, kind of a big hot button topic with tennis with the French Open is Naomi Osaka actually made a huge statement by basically refusing to do media surrounding the event. Yep. And she tweeted out and she just basically said, you know, media doesn't care about our mental health. And in so many words, you know, the post game or um, that's baseball term. I don't know. Press conference is just kind of hammering these same questions and kind of badgering them and trying to break them almost so they can have, you know, this moment of they break someone down and in the press conference or they get a reaction or something like that. And she just said for her own mental health, she's just going to skip media because she doesn't think it's good for her. And she's trying to make a statement. She said, if there's any fines, she's going to try to donate it to a mental health organization. Yeah, I think it's, Obviously, none of us really know what Naomi's going through or experiencing, and she's trying to express it, um, you know, whether or not it's the right way or the wrong way. I think what's going to happen is now media is probably going to be a, a little offended by this, and I think what's going to happen is they're probably going to go after her a little bit now and say that she has a responsibility and she has to do all this and she has to talk to them and she needs to be a professional about it and say all these cliches and no one's going to have any empathy or concern or compassion and go to, go to her individually and just be like, Hey, like, sorry for what you're going through. Like, do you want to sit down and have a conversation and maybe we can figure out a better way to do this or we can write a story and tell, you know, everyone what you're experiencing. So you can, everyone can see your side of the story. I just feel like it's going to, there's going to be a lot of daggers thrown. Um, and it's going to be very reactive instead of, you know, the compassion and the empathy and the understanding that, you know, people probably should give her right now. 
Yeah. So the officials basically came back and said, you, this kind of creates an advantage for you because your opponent is, you know, in addition to preparation and getting ready for the match has to also give energy to the media obligations. And so they kind of said, well, you have an unfair advantage because you're able to skip that and almost like rest. And they kind of like played it as that. And then they also said, you know, an obligation for sponsorships and TV and all of that, which I think is the more obvious one versus like, oh, you're giving, you're allowing your opponent to have less rest than you. I think that's that's interesting. <clears throat> kind of silly. That's interesting though, because them saying, oh, you're giving your opponent an advantage because you get to rest instead of talk to media. Is that saying that, you know, talking to media is a performance like depressor? Yeah. Essentially, they're saying like, oh, that. That's, well, you're giving it energy. Takes, you it have takes to make energy. it yeah. to so a, an, a, like an appointment. That's an interesting statement by the. So by she tennis. ended up, she got fined. It was $15,000 fine. And she ended up just today announcing that she was dropping out of the French Open because they were threatening to expel her and disqualify her from future events. So she just said, I'm going to step away. She said she's dealt with like all pretty much debilitating anxiety over press conferences before. Uh, she said she's super closed off person. She's always wearing headphones. Like it's just something, it's a great fear of hers. And she says if she has a poor performance, they just kind of jab at her and keep going and want to talk about it and break the wound open. And it's just not good for her. Yeah. I mean, look, the media can be great. For so many reasons. It, it's very similar to social media, right? right? Like the media can be awesome. And obviously when things are going good and you're getting asked all these questions and they're applauding you and being positive, it's great. But it's it's not a good feeling when bad stuff happens and you have to stand up there and basically defend yourself um, for a, pro, a poor performance. I mean, basically for being human, right? Like, right. You, I think everyone thinks that we're supposed to be these crazy superheroes who never fail and always come up big in the clutch and, you know, never make an error or never make a bad pitch. And then when that does happen, I feel like, you know, sometimes it's, you know, there's people try to f like just prod you and poke you and try to find stuff so they can... Right. And it's such a, I feel like the society just feeds on negative right now. Like, yeah. And I mean, this was really, especially when I was in New York, when I was with the Mets, it was such like a negative driven press. Like the more negative they were, I think the more ratings and the more clicks they got. So it's just like a nature of the press to be negative so they can get more people and more traffic to come and read their papers or click their links or, or watch their post-game shows. And it's just, it's crazy how, and I, I don't know, people for some reason just flock towards negativity today for some reason. Yeah. And like I mentioned, if a player is slumping or going through a bad stretch, they don't need to be reminded. And so it's yeah. just funny when you go and you watch a press conference and they're like, oh, like, obviously you suck tonight. You want to talk about sucking more? Cause you don't know that you suck tonight. Like on top of the shame that you already feel and yeah. all of that, you have to go back and, and revisit it, which I get it. You're in a, a professional sport and you are in the public eye and people 
feel like they're owed an explanation or they're maybe going to get some sort of insight into the performance. But a lot of times it just seems kind of like a lot of the same questions and a lot of the same answers like regurgitated over and over. And again, like you mentioned, there's so many great things about the media and they can shine a light on so many things and they can highlight your performance. They can highlight good things that you're doing in the community and all that. So not to knock on the media or to make a blanket statement that they all have this negative motive behind what they're doing, but it does, it is difficult. And it is good that Naomi brought this up and brought this to light because I mean there are a lot of article I mean Deadspin did an article that just said Naomi has this all wrong and she's pretty much messing this whole thing up and this is bogus and just attacking her and I feel like it goes back to what you said like you really never know and you don't understand and I think that there this could be maybe brought like changed into something better or they can maybe I don't know even just shining a light on this and just you know how many people and young people or women idolize her and so Mm -hmm. to know that their hero is going through something maybe that they're going through I think it's already done a great thing and it's yet to be seen what comes of it after this and obviously I think it's you know it's if she needs to take time away then she needs to take time away I'm sure there'll be people disappointed in that and sponsors disappointed in that and you can say rightfully so but I think just to open up this whole conversation I think is it's on the right track. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's different ways to go about it when when stuff's happening. When, when reporters are like, oh, you guys have lost nine of your last 10 and you're, you're hitting under 200 and they just start reading off irrelevant stuff that you're already fully aware of. Yeah. Like, to me, that is just a, almost feels like a personal attack. But when something happens in the game and you have an opportunity to kind of explain your side of it or something happens in the match and you have an opportunity to tell your side of it. That's where I think, you know, the media is a good outlet. And I'll give you an example. When I was in New York playing second base, uh, Jason Isringhausen was chasing down 300 saves. And I think we he was going for a number like 298 or 297. I was playing second base in the ninth inning. It was like bases loaded, one out or no outs. And I got a slow ground ball to me, like in the baseline. So I came up and fielded it. And the runner on first stopped and started backpedaling. And so as I was chasing him, I went to throw the ball to Lucas Duda at first base and threw it over his head. So runner safe, run scores, or two runs score. Uh, now it's like second and third. Jason gets a blown save because of this when he's two saves away from 300 because of the error I made. Um, we end up losing the game. And so after the game, I go in the clubhouse and before the media gets in, I go in the weight room and I work out for like 45 minutes, even though I wasn't planning on working out. And then I go in the training room and I sit on the table for like a half hour and get ice on something that I probably didn't need to ice. And then I go in the food room and I'm sitting there eating and taking my time. And really what I was doing, I was just scared to death to go in the clubhouse and have to face the media and have to explain to them that I essentially blew Jason's 298th save. Right. And this is one of the, one of the lessons I learned 
and I, yeah, I, I might've told this story before, but, uh, David Wright came and grabbed me and he said, what's going on? What are you doing? Like, and I was just like, I just don't want to go talk to him. And he essentially said, Hey, look, you're going to help us win a lot more games than you're going to cost us. Just go out there, tell your side of the story, tell them exactly what happened and get it over with. He's like, cause if you don't, they're going to just write whatever they want anyways. And so he walked me out there and he stood with me and I did my, my interview, but I was scared to death to go out there and face the media. So I completely understand when stuff goes sideways, how guys and girls can be intimidated and scared and, and not know. But I think in those situations, it is best to be able to explain your side of what happened and how it went down. So at least they can write, you know, what actually happened instead of just making stuff up. You know, I always think about that if it comes off as like if you explain a play, if it sounds like you're making an excuse or I don't know, like so a lot of times you just kind of accept it and be like, yeah, this is what happened instead of trying to say anymore. I don't know. Does it kind of feel like? Well, yeah, now I've, I've learned that that's the best avenue to go about it. But yeah, you know, obviously in um, Naomi's case, like it's it's still difficult for her it's still challenging for her it's still intimidating there's still anxiety behind it there's we don't know what's driving it or or what caused it or what's happening so i it's just unfortunate and i, I hopefully people take time to try to understand her better and realize maybe there's a better way for her to do her media maybe there's a different outlet that she can go through that she's more comfortable maybe right maybe instead of standing in front of a bunch of people talking, maybe it is in a, a zoom setting. I don't know if they've, I don't know how they do their media right yeah, now. Yeah, I'm not sure. But um, hopefully they just try to be understanding with her and, and help her through it. And I do think it's a part of sports. I do think there is some responsibility to the media, um, you know, to make sure everyone knows what's going on with you. But um, at the same time, I think it, it's a two way street and, and people need to understand what the athletes are going through as well. Yeah. And we were talking about it last night, just how different sports are and every single thing now. And it's largely in part to so much media, so much social media that every single little thing is blown up. And it wasn't like that. Like growing up, like I'd what I'd watch the Sox game, but maybe like casually on TV and then or someone checks the paper and sees a box score and sees, you know, hits, runs, errors and winning pitcher, losing pitcher, anything like that. And it's not, I don't know, you could be like supportive of the team and just be like, oh, White Sox won last night or, oh, Dodgers won last night. And now it's every single little thing. It's like you don't even have to watch the game and you can just search or just see something trending and then you click on it and you're like, wait, what did this guy do? And now someone that didn't even watch the game is now privy to such a small moment that happened in the game. Like if that makes sense. Well, yeah, like, Let's take Mookie, for example, who, you know, he got scratched yesterday because of his allergies 10 years ago. Oh, no one. No one would even have batted an eye. Like everyone would have been like, no pun intended, intended. (laughs) but no one would have been like, you know, someone might have opened up the newspaper and been like, oh, Mookie didn't play yesterday. Right. Hmm." But there wouldn't have been a write up in it or whatever. But now, like you said, I didn't know this, but you said like trending on Twitter yesterday was Mookie Betts. Right. Everyone's like, oh my God, he's got an allergy and da, 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 da. And so like. Every little thing now is accessible and and amplified yeah, yeah, by, by social media. So it's crazy and it is more difficult. It is, it is, um, 
you know, a, t- a tighter rope to walk, I guess, as an athlete to, um, you know, not have to deal with negativity. And it is good because again, you can be such a bigger name and sports have, they've grown so much and you can be this casual fan that still somehow knows so much about your favorite player. And, you know, thanks to social media and access and knowing more about everything. So again, it's great and it's good when media is able to share stories and, and kind of, you know, expand the fan base for everyone. But again, there, there's a downside to it. And so I think with Naomi's situation, I think just starting that conversation is good and having that conversation is good. And then obviously we'll see what comes from it. Well, look, I mean, I, I, it's bigger than tennis, right? And it's pretty obvious that it's bigger than tennis for her with her, you know, pulling out of the French Open, which one of the biggest tournaments in the, of the year. Yeah. So, I mean, good for her. I hope she, you know, has the conversations that she needs to have. And I hope the awareness grows and I hope, you know, good things come of this. Yeah. And I mean, someone that has obviously seen the sport change over the last 20 plus years and is probably just, I mean, you could probably have some great conversations with him about how things used to be with the media. What, 21 years ago, your new teammate. Yeah, the machine, Albert Pujols. <laughs> what? I mean, the span of that career, even in this sense, like has to just be like the difference of when he started and to now is obviously. Yeah, things I'm, have changed. I'm sure, things have changed. I haven't had that conversation with him yet uh, about the media difference and social media and and whatnot. But maybe I'll ask him today. But it is exciting to have him on board. And it was kind of crazy how it all unfolded because obviously we were about to play the Angels when we found out he was being designated for assignment. There was rumblings that he was going to be on a Zoom call with Andrew Friedman on one of our off days uh, shortly after that, which was interesting. And then, you know, a few days later, um, you know, it, it was announced that he was coming over here. And then it was just like, oh, my gosh. Like, we're about to play with Albert Pujols. I got the alert on my phone, and I thought it was a practical joke. I didn't know. I was like, is this real? Because obviously some, I don't even remember what reporter broke the news, but it was like, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, and so obviously everyone was just like, it was, it was honestly like a weird energy. Like, guys were like excited, and then like guys were like, wait, like, what's, okay, he's coming, so... Like, what's his role going to be? Like, there was all kinds of, like, questions, right? And the amazing thing was, is, like, from the moment he got into the clubhouse, he's the first guy there every single day. Like, first guy. And the work that he's put in, um, you know, he's working on his swing. He's trying to make some adjustments with, you know, Rob and Brownie um, every single day. And it's obviously, I mean, I shouldn't say, hit like, Robin Brownie are making him a good hitter. He's one of the greatest hitters of all times. I think he's doing a lot of it himself. <laughs> he's but okay. Obviously, it's it's paying off, and he has just been unbelievable. I mean, I I can't even like say enough good things about you know his work ethic. How just extremely excited he is to be in a Dodger uniform. I've never seen a guy more happy to be here. <laughs> so happy. So happy <laughs> and so excited. And then just to hear him say like 
constantly how much fun he's having every single day. Like, ah, oh, I just love this. This is so much fun. It's so much fun playing baseball again. So that is, that's a good feeling because that's, you know, a culture that, you know, we've worked so hard to build over the last six, seven years. And, and for Albert to come in here, a 21 year vet and just be like, wow, this is a great culture. Uh, that's a good feeling. And then, you know, just what he does in the clubhouse for the young guys, the Will Smiths, are, are Latin players who are just, I mean, can you imagine being a, a Dennis Santana or a Edwin Oseta who grew up in the Dominican Republic and idolized Albert as their hero, and now they're sitting two lockers away from him? Uh, eating a pregame spread probably and shit telling myself, stories. <laughs> there we go again. But well, like, even like Will Smith's uh, World Series video was yeah. done by Albert, and then one yep. of the first games, they're yep. high fiving at home plate. Yeah, his first home, homer, yeah. his first home run as a Dodger, and Will was on base for it. That like, was that you was can't such a write cool it moment. like baseball. And then it's Will like a script. Yeah, <laughs> it, it's it's just yeah, it's it's crazy, man. It's it's so exciting. It's exciting for everyone and. Um, you know, he's just such a great guy and, and not just in the clubhouse and on the baseball field. He's a great guy in the community with his foundation, the AP five. Um, we've teamed up with them and done a lot of events with them or supported their events. And he actually came out and played in our golf tournament two he years did. ago. And he bought, he bought a, he bought a ticket to one of our extracurriculars at the golf tournament. Well, hold on before we even get to that, <laughs> let me tell you what Albert did to make sure he can get to our golf tournament. He was in Florida? Miami. Yeah. He took a red eye. <laughs> he took a red eye from Miami to LA, landed at like 7.30 in the morning, got in a car from LAX and drove straight up to Sherwood and got there at like 9.15 so he could participate in our golf tournament. And like, I'm pretty sure he had that? a signed bat in his hand. He had a signed bat for the auction <laughs> in his hand. And I'm just like, oh my God, like Albert, like he just. Albert just rolled up in a town car with a bat in his hand, ready yeah, to play golf at like Right off a red eye from Miami. And I was like, And oh my God. shot incredibly well. And. <laughs> yeah. So what Court was uh, alluding to was uh, that particular year we had a sponsorship from Aston Martin and basically they brought one of their new, it was a DB 12. It's like a, I don't, I don't know. even know how you remember that, but it's yeah, like a $160,000 car or whatever. I don't know what it I was. I think it was more than that. Probably more, whatever. <laughs> Anyways, they, they bring the car out and they like park it right behind the 18th green. And at registration, every golfer had the opportunity to pay a hundred dollars and it's a three hundred and sixteen thousand dollar MSRP. Let's just go back and say I that. I was lowballing it. <laughs> okay. Well, one of them is. I Whatever. don't know. Maybe it was a different one. So, anyways, <laughs> every golfer had an opportunity to buy a ticket, a raffle ticket. It was a hundred dollars, and the raffle ticket was if at the end of the day, if your ticket got pulled, you got a chance to take a shot. Uh, what was it like? One hundred eighty yards or one hundred and sixty yards or something. And if you made a hole in one on the eighteenth green, you got to drive home in the Aston Martin. And the other kicker was if closest to the pin, closest to the pin. So like if someone didn't sink it, which I mean, the odds of that are pretty low. Uh, the person who has closest to the pin gets to take the car home for like a three day weekend or something and, and drive the car around. So yeah, you got it for a weekend. Um, Albert's ticket was pulled and he, I thought this there was a whole crowd. Cause <laughs> at Sherwood you can go like up on the, <laughs> like up on the balcony and there were a bunch of people like 
I thought he drained it. I thought it was going in the hole. The photos he, are so. I should pull them from. Uh, oh my goodness! It was crazy. Suhu's album. He was like we, two feet. It was unbelievable, and the fo- like he thought he had it. So we all. I it. mean, everyone thought he did. So then, so the so obviously he, he's closest to the pin, and he gets to take the car home for a three day weekend. And but I'm thinking like he's gonna be like, oh, don't worry about it. Like I'm good. I don't need to like drive around a car for a weekend. And he was he did it. He was stoked. He was, he was so like, stoked. Called him like on Monday, I think, to like or the next like that week, and yeah. set it up. And the kicker was he had just bought his wife a new car. Like, an, I don't know. I don't remember. What I don't remember what car it was. But then he brought the Aston Martin for the weekend and his wife drove the Aston Martin around. And she's like, Albert, I think I want this car. Yeah. Daniel and he was, was like, I need this. <laughs> so he like, he's tech- like, you almost cost me a Aston Martin. <laughs> yeah. The <laughs> next time I saw him, he's like, dude, you're killing me. I just <laughs> bought my wife a new car and now she wants this car. Like, what the heck, man? I'm like, I'm killing you. You're the one that hit the ball two feet from the hole. Like, yeah. You did it to yourself. Because we saw him at his Top Golf event like a month oh, later yeah. in spring training. It was funny. It was wild. Yeah. Anyways, we're so happy to have him. And uh, what a, what a, what a guy. Hall of Famer on the field and Hall of Famer off the field. Just incredible. Yeah. It still doesn't feel real. And he's, I mean, oh my gosh, the home, people go wacky because I feel like every hit for him is some form of a new record. Yeah. Just after like that, just, the career he's had and like the volume of home runs and hits, like every single hit, I feel like we're hanging on to find out. Like, well, what he just passed. He, he just passed Babe Ruth for uh, fourth all time. Yeah. Yeah, we're just so lucky to have him in Dodger Blue, and it's crazy because actually, when it might have been before, or like right after he got designated from the Dodgers, there was like these bad articles coming out about him, like saying that. You know, he was like playing the Angels and he was bad in the clubhouse and he wanted out of there and he wanted to play every day or, you know, let him go, release him. And and that's just like so far from the truth. This guy loves the game of baseball. He loves playing baseball. And from day one, from before day one, when he had his, his Zoom call with Andrew, he literally just said, look, I love the game of baseball. I'm not done playing I want to be in any role you want me in, whether that's playing once a week or pinch hitting. He's like, I don't care. I just want to keep playing this game. I love it too much. And he, he's held true. That, I mean, that's been the case uh, ever since day one, since he's been over here. So I don't know what was going on with those articles trying to, you know, put a bad spin on, on Albert, but he's just not that guy. Yeah, that seems hard to do. <laughs> yeah i mean i don't, I don't get it at all everything like, i mean i think it, it sounds to me like the angels were trying to cover their ass by saying oh well he didn't he he didn't want to accept like a part-time role and he wanted yeah. to play every day blah, blah 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 like that sounds like the angels were trying to protect their ass yeah it's possible but i mean it seemed at one point you guys weren't gonna lose in the albert era with the dodgers i know we were on a like roll. he doesn't even know what it feels like to lose a game with you guys yeah and then it's like this is great we gotta get back <laughs> on that train that's all right it'll happen that's true all righty well that is gonna do it for this week thank you all for listening make sure you are subscribing whichever way you listen to the podcast and my friendly reminder of apple Podcasts to rate and review us wait can i say something real quick i don't i don't know didn't you 
<laughs> we, we made it over a hundred thousand listens. We did this last week. I know so I was going to post you, it, but then you. I didn't know if that was impressive. And then I, f- I thought about it in the sense of like full Dodger stadium. And I was like, Oh, that's two full Dodger stadiums have listened. Yeah. That's impressive. Cool. You're killing it. Way to go. Trying to stay humble over here. You know, thank you to everyone who listens yes, and everyone you. who subscribes. Our next stop is 200,000. So let's roll. Oh, wow. I love it. Let's do it. <laughs> all right. We will talk to you all next week. See ya. Bye. Boom, 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 bo